0: Copy of God's Word, I would invite you to open up to the book of Acts. As Pastor West shared earlier, we've been walking through the book of Acts. And the title of the message this morning is Church Without Borders. Church Without Borders. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, is where we'll start this morning. But before we start, would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, as we consider your word this morning, reminded of Spurgeon's line where he said, The word of God is like a lion. It just needs to be let out of the cage. And so, Father, would you would you take your word today and let it not be tame as it falls upon us? God, would you be mighty and powerful in our midst? Would you challenge us according to the truth of your word? Would you enliven us by your Holy Spirit and fan the flame, no matter how small it might be in our hearts or minds or how big it might be? God, fan that flame this morning. So that your word is all consuming in our lives, so that we grow in a passion and desire to proclaim the truth of your word. And God, would you captivate our hearts today? Now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Church without borders, you know, a mission statement for a congregation, a mission statement for a business is a very important thing. The mission statement communicates something about that business. Some call it a vision statement, others a mission statement. Some say they're the same. Others say that there's a, a difference between the two. But the mission statement of a business is very important because it communicates something about that business. It tells us the goal or the objective, what this business hopes to accomplish over the long term. Well, in one sense, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the mission statement for the church. Crosspoint has a mission statement for our congregation. It's Crosspoint, it, Crosspoint exists to make disciples of all nations for the good of all people and the glory of God. This is the mission of Cross point. Well, in Acts chapter one, verse eight. The mission statement given to the church by Jesus is this, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. So the disciples are to wait in Jerusalem. The apostles are to wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes upon them with power, and then he will send them out. So this morning, I want us to see simply this, that God calls believers to evangelize the world. God calls believers to evangelize the world. This is our mission. It's to make disciples And part of making disciples is to evangelize the world. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. And I want to invite you to follow along. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from least to greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. Amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying... For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. First point I want us to see this morning from the text in verses 4 and 5 is that believers take the gospel Wherever they go. That's a simple statement. It makes sense, right? Believers take the gospel wherever they go. God dwells within the believer by his Holy Spirit, and because of that we are to be a people who proclaim and tell others, teach others about the name, the power, the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so believers take the gospel wherever they go. Notice what he says in verse four. Now those who are scattered about, those who are scattered went about preaching the word, right? Verses four and five tell us that. All those who were scattered from Jerusalem went about preaching the word. And so what we've seen so far in Jerusalem is we've seen the gospel spreading like wildfire. And this is fitting with Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses where first? In what? Jerusalem, right? In Jerusalem. Then in Judea and Samaria. Then to the remotest parts of the earth. And so we see this, this mission of the church happening and occurring. And so what's going on is the Holy Spirit has filled the apostles, and they began preaching the word, and thousands upon thousands were believing. Last week, we saw in chapter 6 through the beginning of chapter 8 that persecution came upon the church. In fact, there was this guy named Stephen. He was a deacon in the church. He had just been been selected, really, elected to the office of deacon. And he begins preaching the gospel and telling others about the hope of Jesus Christ. That's all of chapter 7. And instead of listening, those in the city who were persecuting him, they put their fingers in the ears and they made a bunch of noise as they approached him in order to drown out what he was saying. And they stoned him to death. And when that happened, people from the church scattered. And they went throughout all of the regions surrounding Jerusalem. And so we see when persecution came upon the church, and even though Stephen was martyred for his faith, we see that there are really two things that kind of jump out at us. One is we see the wisdom of God on display. We see God's wisdom on display. Because here's what happened. Persecution drove Philip, and Philip is one example of what happened to many other believers. But persecution drove Philip and many of the early church outside of Jerusalem. And when they went outside of Jerusalem, Luke records the story of Philip the deacon who begins preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel with those who were in Samaria, a city of Samaria where he landed. It's likely that the apostles wouldn't have received a warm welcome, such a warm welcome as Philip received. And the reason is because Philip was a Hellenistic Jew, he was a Jew who grew up in a Greek culture in a Greek society, and so uh, he, he was more accepted by the Samaritans because there was a long-standing rivalry between Jews and Samaritans. If you recall, in Jesus's ministry in John chapter four, verse nineteen, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he encounters a Samaritan woman who's at the well. And he begins dialoguing with her. And as he's dialoguing with her, the conversation, in the midst of the conversation, she says, we worship here, or our fathers worship here on this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, but you say that in Jerusalem, you say, Jesus being a Jew, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And so there was this great, this great contrasting uh, fight and bickering between Jews and Samaritans. And it began in the 10th century B.C. The 12 tribes of Israel had split. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom defected, and they made Samaria their capital city. And in 722 BC, they were taken into exile, and many of the Israelites were deported to Assyria, but some of them remained there. And then foreigners came in, and they settled in the city, and they intermarried with the Jews. And so the Jews, the two southern tribes, they considered the ten tribes uh, of the north, the The Samaritans, they considered them half-Jew or half-breeds. And so it was a derogatory term that they would use. And there was bad blood between them because of the two. They didn't get along. So Luke 9 records for us the account during Jesus' earthly ministry. Luke, the same one who wrote the book of Acts. He records for us that as Jesus was heading to Jerusalem with his disciples, as he approached Samaria, he sent Peter... I mean, he sent James and John into Samaria in order to secure an overnight stay, to to make arrangements. But the people of the village rejected them and said because Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, they wouldn't accept him and wouldn't allow him safe stay in the village. And so James and John come back and report to Jesus. And James and John were nicknamed Sons of Thunder by Jesus. And the reason they were nicknamed Sons of Thunder was because of comments that they followed up with? Comment like this. They asked Jesus, Jesus, they won't let us stay there. You want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them? <laughs> and These were guys that were, uh, they were brash, right? They were bold. They said, how dare they not allow us to stay there? And so Jesus rebuked them saying that wasn't his way. My point in all of this, I think Luke's point, it's the same John Who comes along with Peter later here in chapter eight. To minister as an apostle and to validate what has happened in the Samaritan church. I think the point that we need to see is this is God's wisdom on display. Perhaps Peter and John wouldn't have received such a great welcome. Had they gone initially to Samaria to preach the gospel, right? But here we have Philip a man who's driven, driven out by persecution that arrives there and begins to faithfully preach the gospel and share the gospel. What I want us to realize is perhaps there are people that God intends you to share the gospel with in your life that others could not. Maybe it's because of a close relationship that you have, family relationship, or, or maybe it's a work relationship. Maybe it's some other commonality between you. But my encouragement is don't waste your relationships thinking someone else will share the gospel with that person. We also see, not only do we see the wisdom of God on display, but we see what the persecutors meant for evil, God used for good. What the persecutors meant for evil, God used for good. Persecution led to the scattering of the church and the scattering of the seed of the gospel. Over the history of the church, the church has been persecuted. It's been riddled with persecution. In fact, in AD 54-68, to under Nero... Christians were imprisoned and executed. Most likely it's a time when the Apostle Paul was executed and Peter. In AD 81 to 96, Domitian, he oppressed Christians who refused to pay the divine honors that he demanded. John was exiled to Patmos during this time. In AD 161 to 180, the leader Marcus Aurelius believed that Christianity was dangerous and immoral, and he turned a blind eye to the severe Local outbreaks of mob violence against Christians. In A.D. 284-305, Diocletian issued four edicts which were intended to stamp out Christianity altogether. He ordered church buildings to be burned, stri- uh, scriptures to be confiscated, clergy to be tortured, and Christian civil servants to be deprived of their citizenship. And if they stubbornly were unrepentant, he would be, they would be executed. Fast forward to 1949... The communist regime defeated the Chinese government and sent 637 inland Chinese missionaries out of the country. They thought the church would collapse. But under intense persecution, the number of believers, believers in China actually grew, and they grew exponentially in comparison to what it was before the persecution began. You see, one of the things that we see throughout church history is that when the church is persecuted, the church thrives. And as West even quoted last week, that. Blood of Christians is the seed of the gospel. This is the way that God works. Even today, there are many, many believers, many in the persecuted church who are being persecuted for their faith. But what the persecutors meant for evil, God intends for good. You know, God will allow us to be uncomfortable. He'll even allow us to be persecuted for our faith to advance the gospel. This is consistent with what Jesus said in the New Testament, is it not? In, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, If they persecuted me, they will also, what? Persecute you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Paul says in First Timothy... All who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ or in Christ will be persecuted. You know, in our country, we've we've enjoyed an unprecedented freedom from persecution. And I'm thankful for the religious freedom that we enjoy. But my encouragement and my challenge to us, and I think scriptural admonition, even God's admonishment of the church, especially the church in the West, is let us not waste the freedom that we enjoy with the complacency of our faith. You know, I I think about the church in this regard, and, and instead of the church looking like the New Testament church in Acts, I fear what the church looks more like is the people of Israel in Deuteronomy. Whenever they got settled in the land and they drank of cisterns that they didn't dig with their own hands and they ate of vineyards that they didn't plant with their own hands and they lived in houses that they didn't build with their own hands and what did they do? They got lazy, complacent. Scripture says they got fat in the sense that they got all of this blessing but then they turned away from God and began worshiping other things, idols. So the challenge for us, I think, church not to waste the freedom that we have the religious freedom that we have in Christ but to be bold about speaking forth as Peter was I mean as Philip is bold here he goes into Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ you see wherever God's people were scattered they went about preaching the gospel and as we leave this gathering this morning in one sense we're leaving a gathering and right we're being scattered And this needs to be the the mission, the vision of, of Crosspoint, of us as believers, that as we're scattered here, we're preaching the gospel, we're proclaiming the gospel. The word for preaching the gospel, we'll see in a few minutes, is euangelizo. It's where we get our word evangelism from. It's to evangelize, to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, we see true or counterfeit faith. True or counterfeit faith. In verse 9, we're introduced to a character. His name is Simon the Magician. Simon Magus, Magnus, if, uh, as others have called him. He was one who was great in the city. He had a great name in the city of Samaria. This is where Philip had landed from his, uh, his flight from persecution. Simon was a man of stature. He was a man who had captivated the the hearts and the minds of the people. He even had a following. People had believed his message. But when they began to believe Philip's message, the message that Philip was preaching, they were freed. They experienced a freedom from bondage to Satan. Look at what it says there in verse 7. For unclean spirits were crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much Joy in that city. They were healed from lameness, from paralysis. They were healed from demon possession. How did this happen? It happened by the proclamation of the gospel. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip and they heard him and saw the signs that he did. He was preaching the word. Verse 12 gives us a little more clarity on what preaching the word meant. In verse 12, it says, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. This good news about the kingdom of God, it is the good news that God has made a way for his people to come to him. He's made a way for a, rec- a reconciliation, a restoration in the relationship between God and his people. This chasm that exists that, that Pastor Andrew spoke about earlier during our time of confession, the sin that entered the world and separated man and God, this Sin problem has been dealt with in the person of Jesus Christ, and this is the message that Philip came to begin preach, or that, that Philip came and preached to God's pe- uh, to the Samaritans. And as he preached this message, many heard it and they believed, and then they were baptized and followed Christ. This is what the passage is talking about, and this is why verse eight says there was so much. Joy, there was much joy in that city. You see, this is how the gospel works in our lives. God, by his power, frees us from bondage. This wasn't the case for Simon. Scripture says in verse 13, in fact, for Simon. That Simon himself also believed and was baptized, and he continued with Philip. And after seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was he was amazed. But then we we continue to read, and in verses 18 through 24, we see that Simon's faith was a counterfeit faith. It wasn't a true faith. When he saw the power of the Holy Spirit demonstrated through the laying on of hands by the apostles, what did Simon want to do? He wanted to purchase this power. He saw a way to get back to the top. He saw a way for for his glory to be made known. He saw a way for him to be exalted and highly in people's Eyes and people's mind in verse 20, Peter said to him, though, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. And in this exchange between Peter and Simon, it seems that Simon was unrepentant and wouldn't even pray. Peter tells him, repent, therefore, of the wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And Peter, uh, Philip, Simon says to him, for I see or Simon said to him in verse 24, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come to me. Instead of praying himself, you see, he even invokes Peter to pray on his behalf. And it seems that there was not any repentance on Simon's part. Simon's faith was a counterfeit faith. It's one that wasn't true. Peter tells him, I see that you're still in the gall of bitterness. You're in the bond of iniquity, meaning there's still a bondage in your life. You've not truly been set free. Even though you said you believed and you were baptized, you weren't truly set free from this bondage that holds you, this sin in your life, this desire to exalt self, this desire for for self-glorification sobering truth that Luke gives us, it's often possible to counterfeit our response to the present and activity of God's spirit. This is what happens when men, women try to earn favor with God in some way, try to merit God's blessing. This might be what some of us even try to do, we try to earn or merit God's blessing. There's all sorts of reasons that people decide to be affiliated with Jesus. People decide to be affiliated with the church. Maybe it's somebody that's running for public office, and they want to, you know, they want to better their image, and so they decide to start attending a congregation. Maybe they think that by attending church that they'll become a better person. You know, it can't hurt to have a little Jesus in my life, right? I mean, that's that's a popular thought. Maybe it's so that their kids can attend a certain school and even have a discount because they actually go to that church, their members, they even tithe there. And look, there's even a tax benefit because there's a tax write-off as I'm paying for tuition and getting a discount. There, There are many reasons why people become affiliated with the church. For Simon, his reason was he wanted power. He wanted power. Are there reasons in our life... That we've become affiliated with Jesus, but yet. It's not the real reason that we need to be followers of Christ. right? Do we look at church as some way to make us morally right or morally clean before God? Do we look at associating with God's people as a way to give us kind of a foot into the door? Do we think maybe that by attending church, we're doing God a favor? These are all wrong assumptions, and Philip makes it clear as he proclaims the gospel, that it's through salvation. Salvation is through Jesus Christ in this relationship with him. And so we see this picture of counterfeit faith, but we also see this great picture of true faith And this picture of true faith is coming in the people who then are baptized, believe, baptized and then receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, there's. There's something that happens in verses 14 through 17 where the apostles arrive on the scene. And this is kind of an anomaly in in Scripture in one sense. This is the only time we see this happening in this way in in Scripture. But the apostles come and there seems to be this two-stage initiation into the kingdom of God. In fact, I would go so far as to say that there are denominations that have built and believed and taught incorrect doctrine off of this verse. I'm convinced that two of those denominations are on the opposite ends of the theological spectrum. And what they do with these verses is they teach that there is a second filling of the Holy Spirit in the charismatic circle or in the high church, uh, in the high church denominations, they would teach that there is a, a second a second initiation, so to speak. So there's there's a infant baptism that initiates us into God's people. And then there's a second initiation, which comes at the point of confirmation or comes at the point of finishing catechism and and partaking of the Eucharist for the first time. And so what I would say is that I don't see anywhere in Scripture. Remember, Acts is a descriptive narrative and not a prescriptive work. In other words, it describes what is happening in the unique context of the early church, and it doesn't necessarily prescribe to us how we need to model the church or the doctrine that we should build our church or build the church upon. So from that sense, the passage is an anomaly. But in verses 14 through 17, the apostles arrived there in Samaria, and they pray, laying hands on the people, they pray for them. And then they received the Holy Spirit as they prayed for them. Yeah, I think one of the things that's going on here in Acts in chapter 8 is this is the first time that the gospel has gone outside of the church in Jerusalem. And now, where has it gone but to those deplorable Samaritans, Right? And so now you've got the Jerusalem church filled with, with believers that are there, that are Jews, and now the gospel has, has spread out beyond Jerusalem to an area where, quite frankly, the apostles aren't comfortable to go, because those are the Samaritans. And so what does Philip do? Philip goes and he preaches the gospel to them, and he shares with them the hope of Christ. And so then the apostles in the early church, they, they hear about it, and they say, man, we we need to send Peter and John to go and check this out. And so when Peter and John arrive there and they, begin, they get on the scene and they begin checking out, they realize, yeah, these, these are these are believers. And so they lay hands on them and the Holy Spirit descends upon them. And this is evidence for the apostles, for the Jerusalem church, that the church is not to be divided, but later what Paul would even say in Ephesians chapter 2, that the crucifixion of Christ broke down every barrier, every hindrance. And so now there is there's no second class citizen in the kingdom of God. Now all are unified. They all are are equal in that sense in God's kingdom in the church. And so this really is about the unity of the gospel. The apostles go and they validate the genuineness of the Samaritan converts. This is about protecting the unity of the church and upholding. Holding what what God says in scripture. The third truth that I I want us to see this morning and this all ties together is in verses 26 through 40. Believers are called to personal evangelism. Let me narrate what happens between verses 26 and verse 40. After the apostles have come. And after the Holy Spirit has descended upon the people. Philip is called to leave and to go away. In fact, it says an angel of the Lord rose, an uh, angel of the Lord appeared to Philip and said to him, rise and go toward the south to this desert place. And so what does Philip do? He gets up and he goes. And as he gets there, the Holy Spirit of God tells him, go and, and go up to that chariot. And as he goes up, he's running alongside the chariot. And then he hears uh, a man inside the chariot reading from Isaiah chapter 53, the greatest the greatest messianic Text in all of the Old Testament, and he begins asking him a question. And, and the, the Ethiopian eunuch invites him to come and sit with him. And then Philip explains the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch is filled with joy. And he says, "What what stops me from being baptized now?" And so as they're driving down the road, get the picture. Philip's sitting in the chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch, who is uh, who is a a, a a treasurer of the queen of Ethiopia from the region of Candace. And so he's a he's a high official. And so as they're traveling, he sees the water on the side. And so the eunuch says, what prohibits me from being baptized right now? And so Philip says, nothing. So let's go. And they go down into the water. And the eunuch is baptized. And as he comes up out of the water, Philip then is led by the spirit away. And he finds himself in a place called Azotus. And he continues preaching the gospel. But it says of the Ethiopian eunuch that he was rejoicing as he went on his way. Now. We have in chapter 8, really the narrative about two modes of evangelism. There is the proclamation to the large gathering of people, but then there's also this side of personal evangelism in Acts chapter 8. And that's what we see with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. One thing that we notice from the initial words of verse 26 is that Philip's ministry to the Ethiopian eunuch was providentially arranged. It was God orchestrating their interaction. But there's really more to the story. When, when the angel of the Lord speaks to Philip, Philip has a choice, right? Do I go or do I stay? I mean, that's Philip's choice. And so here's what I want us to see, is that obedience calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. In verses 26 and 27, we, we see this. He rose and he went. And as he went to that desert place, there was an Ethiopian eunuch. tells us about him. And here's what had happened. He had gone to worship God in Jerusalem. Now, uh, let me just suggest to you that there are times where we want to rest in past success and not run the present race God has called us to run, right? We can see how that would happen possibly for Philip. He's got this choice. Do I stay or do I go? Look, we've just seen God pour out his spirit here in this place in Samaria. I could stay here and continue ministering. I could do some great things, right? Or uh, I deserve a little break. Uh, You know, this was a look at this great work, God, that that, that you've done here in Samaria. But instead, Philip says, I'm going to obey. I'm going to go. And so at times we want to rest in past success and not run the present race. God has called us to, you know, there can be many reasons why. Maybe we're comfortable in our routine and we don't want to interrupt anything. Maybe we're so crunched with time that we don't know how to take a moment out of our busy schedules to speak with someone about their salvation. This is even what we're talking about in our Sunday morning Bible study time, right? The I am going series that we're reading through. I am going to my neighbors. You ever notice, you know, it could be just that we're we're tired. You ever notice how when you're tired, God tends to get the the last fruits of your effort and not the first fruits of your effort? It's kind of the leftovers. When you're running, running low on energy, uh, you kind of tend to give God the last. God is the first thing that kind of gets cut from the schedule oftentimes. Maybe spending time in the Word or prayer, memorizing Scripture, all these things kind of take a back seat when life gets hectic and busy, right? But that's not the way it ought to be. And I want you to know that Philip wasn't satisfied with the past success of his work for God. Instead, Philip was ready and willing for the present work of God through him. This is how we ought to be, church believer, ready and willing for God to be at work in us and through us. You know, the word evangelism is used five times. This verb or noun, euangelizo, is used five times in chapter 8 between verses 4 and 40 five times to speak about it in verse 4 it's used of preaching the gospel it's used in verse 12 of preaching the good news it's used in verse 25 of preaching the good news it's used in verse 35 of speaking and telling of the good news and it's used in verse 40 of preaching the gospel in the towns until he comes to Caesarea So I want us to see that obedience calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. This is what Philip's doing. He's walking by faith and not by sight. But secondly, I want us to see that obedience positions me, positions us, to be used by God. Obedience positions us to be used by God. Beginning in verse 28, we kind of really get this, this sense. Philip didn't have any idea why the angel of the Lord had called him, to go to this desert place and called him away from Samaria where he's seeing so much great work happening for the gospel. But as he arrives, in verse 29, the Holy Spirit says, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran up, he heard the man talking, he joins him in the chariot. And Philip becomes a guide for the Ethiopian eunuch to believe the gospel. He heard him reading, From Isaiah 53, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? Philip then began to dialogue with the Ethiopian and he said, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, no, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And so Philip then begins to explain the hope of the gospel. He begins, verse 35 says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. A challenge to us, church believer, perhaps God wants to use you as a guide to someone like Philip is the guide to the Ethiopian eunuch. Maybe maybe for you. God is desiring to use your gifts, if you will submit and listen to his leading, his prompting, to use your gifts to maybe engage in in teaching. Maybe it's teaching children's Sunday school. I'll never forget Mr. Bundy, who was a, a faithful disciple of Christ. And week after week, Mr. Bundy, he was in his late 70s when he taught fourth and fifth grade Sunday school. And Mr. Bundy was a rather large man, and so he would walk with a cane very slowly. If you got behind him going upstairs to the Sunday school room, it took forever to get there, all right? But here's the thing about Mr. Bundy. God used that man as a guide to these 4th and 5th graders in learning about the gospel. He loved Jesus, and he wasn't afraid to use his gifts to serve God's people, nor was he to complacent to use his gifts to serve God's people. You know, if teaching children Sunday school, it may not be your particular gifting. Your gifting might be in some other capacity to lead a men's ministry group among God's people or to begin a discipleship group or to teach others or to start a Bible study group at work. Maybe it's to, to, to be a guide for your neighbors, to be a guide for your barber as you interact with him. Or hairstylist. Or maybe it's to be a guide for close friends who aren't walking with Christ. Or a coworker whose marriage is really struggling. How, how is God desiring to use you to be a guide to others that he has placed in your life? A guide to them seeing and knowing the truth of the gospel. You see the key to being used by God to guide others to know Christ. Or to grow in spiritual maturity is to walk in obedience. You might say, well, if an angel of the Lord comes and tells me to do something, then I'm going to do it, right? Well, have you considered that God might say, I've already told you what to do in my word? How about starting, how about starting there? Start with what I've already told you to do. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect. Or what Pastor Ress read, early, read, read earlier, Second Corinthians 5.20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Or Matthew 28.19, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And listen, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, one last thing I want us to see this morning is let's look at what God was doing simultaneously in a non-believer's life. Consider the Ethiopian eunuch for a moment. He had traveled to Jerusalem, verse 27 says, he had traveled there to worship God. So God was obviously at work in this man's life. He was pursuing the true, the one true God, the God of Judaism, He had gone to the temple, he had acquired a scroll of Isaiah, and he's reading about this Messiah, this promised Messiah. His heart was fertile and he was reading from this as he was reading from this passage. I don't want to suggest to you that this is how the kingdom of God comes on Earth as it is in heaven. Here's the picture, believers walking obediently and being guided by the Holy Spirit, right? And then you've got God working in the life of a non-believer as he's searching out truth about who God is. as His heart or her heart is becoming fertile to the, way, to the ways of God and the things of God. And then you've got God providentially intersecting these two lives. So that as the obedient disciple hears from God and makes himself or herself available to be a guide to lead someone to Christ, he or she is able to share the hope and the truth of Scripture to evangelize, to give a defense for the hope that we have, to proclaim the gospel. You know, I know there are a lot of areas in our lives where we feel like we may not have it all together, right? We feel like we're not, we're not walking faithfully maybe in some areas or we feel like we're just struggling in this particular area. But let me encourage you in one thing. Whenever you begin evangelizing and sharing the gospel with other people, it kind of takes the focus off of your problems. And it opens your eyes to the big picture of the work that God is doing in the world around you. And somehow all of those problems seem to dissipate and become less and less important as we kind of offensively follow God and want to be used by him and engage with him in his mission. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And listen, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth. So this is what happens. The kingdom of God is advancing on earth as it is in heaven. So Are you ready for the opportunities God provides for personal evangelism? Are you praying for endurance to walk obediently in God's way and listening for the opportunities to share the gospel with others. What followed for the eunuch was baptism. The eunuch was the first African convert. It's interesting to notice he goes back to Ethiopia. But right there on the road, he was baptized. And I don't want to dwell long on this, but I have many friends who would disagree with me, even argue from a position of scriptural implication regarding the practice of post-conversion baptism by immersion. Right, so that means being baptized by immersion after one has been converted to the faith. This is why I'm Baptist. This is why you're Baptist. It's because we believe what Scripture says about this. Literally, I don't mean to simplify the argument or implication that another denomination would have about infant baptism. But anywhere that we read in Scripture of baptism, it always, always, always follows a person's confession of Christ. Their conversion to Christ. We never read anywhere in Scripture of an infant child being baptized. Baptism always occurs post-conversion in Scripture And baptism is the outward sign of the internal work of God, this transformation, this death, burial, and resurrection, what we've seen a picture of this morning with Oliver from Romans chapter 6. And so what happens with this eunuch is he says, this is great, I want to identify, I I believe, I want to identify now with the people of God, with Jesus Christ. And so he goes down into the water, and he's baptized. Baptism, baptized, baptizo, it means to be immersed. It is an immersion. And so they both got down in the water. And then it says he, Philip, baptized him. He baptized him by immersion. This is what Jesus speaks to the, the water ride of baptism in Matthew, chapter 28, the Great Commission that I read a few moments ago. So the Ethiopian's baptism was a baptism by immersion. They both went down into the water. He was baptized and then they both came up out of the water. And after that happened, Philip was led by the spirit to Azotus, where he preached the gospel. My challenge this morning is if there's anyone in here. Who has not been baptized post conversion to Christ. If if you're just holding off from the waters of baptism. Hear God's word here. This is an act of obedience. It's an act of obedience to the scripture. That you would be baptized. By immersion. So Philip goes on preaching the gospel and it says of the Ethiopian eunuch that he went away rejoicing. He went away rejoicing. This is the effect of all who surrender their lives to Christ. Joy and rejoicing. In a similar way to Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. God desires to use his disciples who walk in obedience to his commands. He wants to use us to evangelize, to share the hope of the gospel of the kingdom of God with those who don't know Christ. And this is a glorious truth about how God works and how God is, how God involves us in his divine plan of advancing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. What we see in Acts chapter 8, is the church without borders. The church begins growing and spreading, and God uses his people to do that. This is what we need to see today from Crosspoint, from the churches across our city, the church without borders, that we would also begin spreading and sharing and evangelizing the communities that we live in, the workplaces where we go. All of this, all of this for the sake of the gospel, for the glory and the name of Jesus Christ. Well, we see here an example of personal evangelism with Philip. He walked in obedience. And we see that God even moves Philip and moves the believers outside of the church through persecution so that as believers are scattered, the gospel is scattered. So two things. Number one, are you being faithful to scatter the gospel as you go, believer? Are you scattering gospel seed so that it takes root in people's lives? Are you trusting God to lead you and to direct you to follow him? Are you walking in obedience? Maybe for you this morning. This relationship with Christ is something that you've never considered or heard or had, and I want to encourage you or challenge you this morning, if 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 you have questions about what it means to follow Christ. I would love to speak with you about that if uh, the picture of baptism is one that has challenged you. I'd love to speak with you about what it means to surrender your life to Christ, to follow Christ, to be a Christian. You don't have to do this thing on your own. The Holy Spirit comes and fills God's people and he empowers us to walk. To follow him, to be obedient, to live for him and to to speak for him, to share the gospel with others. I want to close us in prayer and. You respond this morning as the Lord leads. Let us pray. Father in heaven. As we consider your word this morning in our own lives. I pray that you would. Use it to. Encourage us to challenge us in areas where we need to be challenged. Um, to. Um, to work in our lives by your Holy Spirit, we, we ask that you would work in our lives by your Holy Spirit. To teach us and show us the truth of your word. We thank you for the testimony of baptism that we've seen this morning in Oliver. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to do this great work amidst our congregation and the homes of families. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us to be your witnesses as we go out into the world, as we're scattered from this place. It's in Christ's name we pray. <coughs> Amen.